Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Last fall, Politico reporter Alex Thompson wrote a short news story about President Biden's then-science advisor, Eric Lander. And it was about how Eric Lander was driving everyone in the White House crazy. He was changing deals, going up to Capitol Hill on his own, the kind of internal fighting that's not unheard of in official Washington. But then, after writing that article, Alex got a tip. Then I received an anonymous email from a Proton Mail account that said... I was missing the real story. The real story is how he treats his subordinates, how he treats his staff. Lander, according to Alex's sources, was verbally abusing his staff, including a lawyer named Rachel Wallace. She was the general counsel at the White House Science Office uh, for Joe Biden. And she alleged that Dr. Lander bullied her and retaliated against her after she repeatedly raised ethical red flags about his behavior. One of those red flags was about Eric Lander's closeness with another Eric, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt, and Lander's desire for Schmidt's foundation to help fund the White House Science Office. Schmidt and Eric Lander go back years. Eric Schmidt and Eric Lander are incredibly close. Uh, Since 2012, Eric Schmidt has been on the board of the Broad Institute, where Eric Lander was the founding director. They both served together on the president's science science council during the Obama administration. They were on the defense innovation board at the Pentagon. So these two people are very close. After Alex wrote about the bullying allegations, Eric Lander resigned from the administration under pressure. But Eric Schmidt's influence remains. According to Alex, at least two staff members from the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy were paid indirectly through Eric Schmidt's foundation. Roughly a dozen staffers in the 150-person office were associates of Schmidt's. Today on the show, the murky web between Eric Schmidt and the White House Science Office. A messy story about influence, ethics, and who gets to make policy. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around.
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I want to go back a little bit and sort of set the table on Eric Schmidt's interest in democratic politics and policy. How far back does his involvement in White House policy go? His interest in White House politics and forming relationships with White House goes all the way back to the Clinton administration, in which the Clinton administration creates their first White House website, whitehouse.gov. And Mm -hmm. Eric Schmidt, as a high executive at then Sun Microsystems, comes in and helps them with that. Now, that's just a little bit of a taste. Starting with the Obama administration, really the 2008 campaign, Eric Schmidt is basically all over it, to the point that in October of 2008, while he's the CEO of Google, he goes on the campaign trail for Barack Obama. And then over the course of the Obama administration, there was an analysis done that basically found that a you know member of Google had basically met with White House personnel on average of once a week for the first seven years hmm. of the Obama administration. During the 2012 campaign, Eric Schmidt was very involved with Obama's re-election effort to the point that on election night, he was in the campaign boiler room. He also helped out of that experience, helped found a data company called Civis Analytics that helps Democratic campaigns, including Joe Biden's 2020 primary campaign. What does he want? Is it is it just to be close to power? Is it to get a policy outcome that is favorable for his companies? Or is it something more nebulous? You know, it really depends who you ask. Now, there are two main, I think, most compelling arguments. There are some people that obviously believe he's doing this because he's corrupt, that you know, even though he's worth about $23 billion, you know, him having a role or sort of influence or a stake, uh, you know, a voice in science policy is a way for him to further enrich himself. I mean, he is on the board of a lot of artificial intelligence companies. He still has a lot of Google stock. He has a 20% stake in this huge hedge fund with over $60 billion in assets. So there's one side that's like, he wants to be close to power. He wants to further enrich himself. The people that are probably more sympathetic say that Eric Schmidt has a very strong belief that the future of American supremacy is based largely around the future of artificial intelligence policy. Essentially, Eric Schmidt has the conviction that whichever country is the most dominant in artificial intelligence policy is going to win the 21st century. And so he wants to have a very strong role in the future of American science policy because he believes it's necessary for the country. Are are there concrete ways that he has affected government science and tech policy that, that we can point to? During the Trump administration, he ended up serving as chair of, the, of this Congress-created commission called the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. And basically, them and a a big staff, their job was to 
help set priorities for artificial intelligence in national security. It's supposed to essentially be something of a North Star for the Pentagon and for the defense establishment. And he was the chair of it. And they produced this huge uh, 700-something page report that uh, was released last year and is now, you know, in some ways sort of the map forward for how the defense establishment especially, but, you know, a lot of the country is thinking about the future of artificial intelligence policy. Where Schmidt comes together with the Office of Science and Technology Policy is is kind of complicated. So what does OSTP do in its, like, most simple iteration? It is the science office within the White House. Now, you have departments. You have the health department. You have other places that deal with, like, health. But OSTP is located within the executive office of the president. So in some ways, it is the science office with the most proximity to the president. Now, the priorities of the office, which was created in 1976, differs with every president. Now, in this current office, um, the Biden administration office, they've been tasked with planning for future pandemics, artificial intelligence policy writ large, especially how to think about civil rights and algorithmic discrimination. And they are now also in charge of Biden's cancer moonshot, which is one of his most personal priorities, and with dealing with climate change writ large. So these are big issues. Yes. And, you know, they don't necessarily have the staff that, you know, places like the Environmental Protection Agency do, or like the Pentagon does with artificial intelligence. But they are sort of the ones that set a lot of the parameters of how the White House is is setting the direction with science policy. President Biden pledged that he was going to make science a focus of his administration. And he elevated the Office of Science and Technology Policy, otherwise known as OSTP, to a cabinet-level office. Within that office, Alex says, lots of staffers had links to Eric Schmidt or his foundation, Schmidt Futures. We already know that over a dozen associates of his, um, including current and former employees, landed at the science office, which is only about 150 people. He has close relationships with, obviously, Eric Lander. Several of the people that worked on the... National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence that he chaired also landed at OSTP. Former Google employees landed at OSTP. And also, over the summer, for about four months, the chief innovations officer at Schmidt Futures, a man named Tom Khalil, who had worked at OSTP in the past, was brought on to OSTP as an unpaid consultant while he was still being paid and working full-time at Schmidt Futures. Schmidt Futures is also very involved in many of the events and many of the initiatives that OSTP is doing. So, you know, on a personal level, he has very strong opinions of the future of science policy. And the number of Schmidt Futures connections and people that recently worked for Schmidt Futures is pretty significant, considering the office is relatively small. Listening to Alex detail all of this can be a little confusing. Maybe the links between Eric Schmidt and OSTP feel slightly opaque. Alex contends that that's on purpose. The thing is that it's supposed to be complicated, that these sort of relationships and dynamics are supposed to be difficult to unravel. I mean, that's how it's intentionally dense. What do you, what do you mean by that? It is not meant to be easily traced back to Eric Schmidt. 
is my point, is ah. that there some of these financial connections and connections to other people are meant to sort of be like one person removed. For example, this Federation of American Scientists Fellowship. Now, when these fellows are then sent to um, OSCP, it, they, are, they say that they're coming in as a fellow for the Federal Federation of American Scientists. But I received internal emails that showed that when they were trying to bring on a specific person, his name is Mark Adenoff, who's now the chief of staff, internally, the deputy chief of staff of workforce put in writing, oh, the energy department has now secured Schmidt Futures funding for this fellow. So even though it was through FAS, hmm. they, there was sort of an understanding that, yes, they're coming through FAS, but this is a Schmidt Futures funded person. I think people might listen to this and say, well, shared backgrounds and connections and advice are one thing, but that the money somehow feels different. When you talk to people within the science office, what was it that stuck out to them? Was it the funding or was it the kind of relationships that went way back? The funding is what raised the first red flags. In the words of Rachel Wallace, it raised significant, quote-unquote, significant ethical concerns. In particular, when they wrote in that email that they had secured Schmidt Futures funding for this person, in that email, they also noted that they had looped in Tom Khalil, who was still working at Schmidt Futures, about them bringing it all on. So Rachel Wallace was said like her urgent and immediate advice is like, you need to get Tom Khalil away from anything dealing with Schmidt Futures, uh, Schmidt Futures funding of staff. And also Schmidt Futures and Eric Schmidt himself have significant conflicts of interest with what OSTP's work is. What was happening in the office of OSTP while these ethical concerns were being raised? You know, the ethics officials in the office sort of felt like they were playing whack-a-mole, where it's like a Schmidt Futures thing comes up here, they have to smash it down. Another Schmidt Futures thing comes over here, they have to smash it down. And they had to repeatedly tell people, hey, Schmidt Futures and Eric Schmidt have significant financial overlap and financial interests in the work that OSCP does. You have to withdraw from this fellowship. Like Tom Khalil cannot be involved and helping bringing on Schmidt Futures back personnel. There, there was this repeated sort of back and forth intention between the ethics officials and some of the higher ups at OSCP. Now, to their credit, you know, sometimes they listen. You know, for example, the then chief of staff of, of the office uh, pushed Tom Khalil out. I think both sides probably feel like they're the good guys. If you're sort of these higher ups, you're like, we have to do so many things at this office and we need to get it done and we need these people. You know, this philanthropy is willing to help bring on extra hands while we're doing really important work. The ethics officials are like, yes, but they have their own interests and there is a clear conflict of interest here. Now, I talked to Norm Eisen, who was the quote unquote ethics czar during the Obama administration. And his opinion was that like, hey, some of these are, you know, very meritorious concerns. That was his word. Um, but he said, like, you can understand how a philanthropy would be like, we just want to help. And then people within the government are saying, yes, but government policy be, should be determined by the government. So in some ways, both sides 
felt that they were doing the right thing. But you can see how that would lead to conflict between people trying to keep the science office above reproach and then the people at the top just trying to, you know, deal with the fire hose of all the work. This is sort of where the, the tension came in. After the break, why the science office was getting outside money to begin with. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, everybody, it's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. It seems pretty strange that a, a private foundation would be paying for public servants to, to work in the White House. But I guess I learned from your reporting that's not completely unusual in this office. People in the office would say that it's chronically underfunded. They only have an annual budget of about $5 million. and that's peanuts in Washington. Yeah. Even the founding statute said that they should utilize consultants. And as a result, you know, people from Federation of American Scientists, from universities— send fellows to OSCP to sort of supplement the work. What's raised ethical flags is that it seems Schmidt Futures was using this mechanism that I think was very earnestly created to help supplement the work of places that are underfunded and understaffed and using it to get his foot in the door. It's such a murky set of issues because as you've laid out, it it sounds really problematic, but then it also sounds like almost in the charter of the office that it was set up to be problematic. Yes. I mean, again, it was a mechanism sort of created with scotch tape. But what's happened is, and what the ethics officials internally flagged, is that they felt that Schmidt Futures was using this mechanism in an untoward way. The White House told Alex that there was nothing unusual about its ties to Schmidt and that the ethical issues that were raised were properly handled. In a statement after Alex's story came out, Eric Schmidt's foundation said that it had worked with the science office for years to address funding issues and that there was no undue influence on policy. Do you see this as a story about the Biden administration or one about Eric Schmidt and his desire to influence policy? I think it's much more the latter, but I think it's striking that even as the politics around some of these tech titans 
have changed a lot in the last six years. I mean, people forget, like during the Obama administration, you know, Eric Schmidt's influence didn't raise any any eyebrows because tech was no, cool. No, everybody was like, ooh, Google's coming to the White House. That's right. That's right. It was a cool thing. So as the politics have changed, Eric Schmidt's influence within Democratic administrations has not. I think what makes this story distinct is that this is a guy with a clear ideology about the future of science policy in America, both on the Pentagon and, you know, from the White House's perspective. And so it's beyond just him having influence. The way in which he has endeared himself to powerful Democrats over the last 15 years is distinct from the normal rich person. I think, like, you know, normal rich people have lots of friends in politics and stuff, but Eric Schmidt has taken a keen interest in solidifying his relationships with the most powerful Democrats in America for the last 12 years. Alex Thompson, thank you so much for your reporting and for talking with me. Hi, thanks so much for having me. This is fun. Alex Thompson reports on the White House for Politico. That is it for the show today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. We're edited by Tori Bosch. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. I want to take a moment to recommend that you listen to Tuesday's episode of What Next, because you get to hear some Dua Lipa and learn about copyright law at the same time. We will be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.